to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Give you a little help, it's right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And while you turn there, let me just, uh, let me just first off say Happy New Year to you. I hope you had a phenomenal Christmas. I'm excited to be back with you. Uh, I also just want to I just want to praise God for just a moment for our incredible worship ministry that we have. I know I say it so frequently, but God has been so kind to us with the gifting that he has given even a body this size. So Chris, we're thankful for you. I'm glad that, we're, that you're better than you realize. Hope God keeps you humble. But thank you for leading us faithfully in worship. I'm also really thankful that the same spirit that dwells in me is the same spirit that dwells in Chris, because we didn't talk about this morning at all. Um, I was traveling, he was traveling, and we basically sang my sermon this morning. Uh, so I just, I love the way that the spirit works in that way. So I want to look at this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I just want to read into your hearing, verses 1 through 8. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 8. King Solomon writes this, There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. It's a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing, a time to search and a time to count as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of new seasons, but same struggles. New seasons, same struggles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I'm so thankful to be with my family this morning in this place to worship you. I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, because God, we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. New seasons and same struggles. Let me give you uh, just a little bit of an idea of where we're heading over the next few weeks. So as most of you know, we're in a series through the book of John, a study that we'll be in for quite some time, but we'll take some breaks intermittently throughout that, and we're going to be taking a break for the next month or so. So this morning, we're going to focus on just this word from Ecclesiastes as we consider the new year and moving into 2024. And then what we're going to do in the month of January, what we tend to do every January, is we're going to revisit in kind of a different and a fresh way uh, our mission and our vision statement. And so we'll spend the month of January just kind of considering who we are as a church, right? Our, our mission statement is that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're actually going to, uh, the beauty of that mission statement, right, is that we pulled it from scripture. 
Uh, and so we can teach it from the Bible. And so what we're going to do over the next month is just look through the book of Ephesians and see how the book of Ephesians from beginning to end actually informs our mission and our vision. But again, this morning, what we're going to do is just focus a little bit on the year that's coming to an end and the year that's about to start. If you didn't know, this is the last day of 2023. So I want to hopefully this morning offer some truths as we reflect back on 2023 and transition into a new year. And while New Year's seems to provide a little bit of optimism about what the future may hold, it's the past that's often the sobering reality that keeps us grounded. Here's what I mean. Over the past couple of weeks, before Ali and I got away for Christmas, I, I ran somewhat of an impromptu survey with some of you. Uh, many of you may recall me asking you some intentional questions about this past year. If I didn't ask you, I still love you. I just didn't run into you in any capacity where I could ask these questions and get your responses. Uh, but I talked to some people uh, that I ran into at different times. But it was interesting because many of the responses, most of the responses were similar. And just for clarity, I asked people if I could share this with you so I'm not just putting their business out there. But many people, when I asked the question, most people immediately hit on the difficulty of this year that's coming to a close. When I, when, when, when I asked the question, hey, when you kind of look back over 2023, how, how was your year? Most people responded first and foremost with, it was really tough. It was a difficult year. And I'll be honest with you, I resonated with that because in many respects, this past year was a year of difficult transitions and some struggles for me and my family as well. But the general tenor of most of the conversations with the people that I asked seemed to be that 2023 was a hard year. People just kind of seemed to be limping into 2024, if you will, just kind of hoping for something different this year. As I was listening to these responses over the past couple of weeks, there there was a poem by Malcolm Gite that I've been trying to memorize, but I don't have it memorized, so I'm just going to read it to you, that just kind of keep, it kept coming to my mind as I was listening to people's stories. This is what he writes. He says, Lord, hear our sighs and bring us swift release, for we have nothing left to us but tears, no light, no joy, no strength, no health, no peace. Only the strife, the dread, the strain, the fears, of these dark times, oh, turn us again, show us once more the mercy of those years. When you were forming us, remember when? You called us out of exile, planted us as your own vineyard, was it all in vain? The way you tended us and nurtured us, that we might bear good fruit in joy and peace. We have borne bitter fruit, but come to us. Help us start again, come and release. With your right hand, the grace we have refused, till shadows flee at last and sorrows cease. It seemed to kind of epitomize a lot of the responses from people when I was asking them about their year. It's been a difficult year for many, and it seems like, again, many of us are genuinely just looking for a fresh start in 2024. That doesn't mean that there weren't some amazing things that happened this past year. Right? For some, new friendships began. Some had amazing career opportunities. Some got engaged. Shout out Antonio, my sister. Congratulations. Some found new healing in areas where there had previously been brokenness. There were good things that happened as well, but there were also hard things. And as I was asking people about their year, there was one conversation with one of our dear sisters that stood out to me the most. And again, I, I asked her permission to share this. 
But as I asked her about her year, it was kind of like everything hit her all at once. Have you been in one of those conversations where it's just like that flood of emotions and you can see it on someone? And her immediate response was, this was a really hard one for me. And with tears, and I joined in in some of those tears, she proceeded to share some really difficult stuff. But then as I was listening and just kind of letting her tell her story, her countenance kind of changed in a moment. And she said, well, I guess there were also some really good things that happened this year. And then I got to listen as she recounted some really amazing things that happened for her and her family. But then as I continued to listen, she said something that really resonated with me. If I'm honest with you, it's what inspired this entire sermon. And this is what she said. Maybe I'm a little crazy. But I just don't know how to think about this year. There were ups and there were downs. I guess it was just another year. And church, listen to me. That might be one of the most profound and theologically accurate things that you could say. That there are ups and there are downs and it's just another year. Because here's the thing. None of us probably had the year we anticipated. None of us. So for those of you who stopped reading in Leviticus, I have a reading plan for you. You can finish in one day to get from Leviticus to Revelation, all right? It's a joke. Come on. You with me? All right. Man. Some of us didn't accomplish everything we set out to accomplish this year. But here's the truth that I have for you this morning, that no matter how much you plan, how much you resolve, how committed you are, as we come into 2024, you will not be the determining factor for how this year plays out. You will not be the determining factor. Let me say it like this. I had a friend once at the start of the new year who told me, he said, this is the year of me. Y'all heard that? This is the year of me. This is my year. And what he meant was that he was going to make sure that everything he wanted to happen happened and everything that he didn't want to happen wouldn't happen. Needless to say, as we got to the end of that year, it turned out that it was not his year of me. I know some of you right now are probably already thinking, man, like we started on a low note. Can we just get a little encouragement? I promise it's coming. Here's what I want to do this morning. I I want to just offer you a few truths this morning. As you try to look back on 2023, understand everything that happened, the ups and the downs, the highs, the lows, the mountains, the valleys. And I want to offer you a couple truths to consider as you move into this next year. And I'm hoping that this will just be a simple message. It's a reminder. I don't think I'm going to teach you anything new. I'm just going to offer some reminders that we need as we move into 2024. Here's the first truth that I want you to see this morning. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. That's a great point. I like that one. Again, I want you to hear it as you look back over this past year. If you are struggling to process the good and the bad of this year, if you're struggling to process the joys and the deep heartaches, right? If your statement is, maybe I'm a little crazy, but I don't know how to think about this year. There were ups and there were downs. I guess it's just another year. If that's your reflection, you are again making a statement that many others have come to realize as well. We see it even here in the book of Ecclesiastes. I really enjoy the book of Ecclesiastes. At some point, I want to preach through it in its entirety because it's just an honest accounting of life. But it's not always pretty. But neither is life. 
And the author of this is Solomon. And Solomon begins Ecclesiastes, the very beginning, with these haunting words, absolute futility. Everything is futile. See, there's some complexity even with Solomon there. You got to remember who he is. This is a king in Israel. This is David's son. This is literally the wisest man who has ever lived. He, this man had, had riches who put the billionaires of today to shame. He had access. He had access to resources. He had access to other world leaders. And when you read through Ecclesiastes, you come to realize he had access to physical pleasures unimaginable. By all accounts, this man had everything. And yet this book of wisdom begins with absolute futility. Everything is futile. And you see, even in that declaration, there's this truth that what our hearts need most it's just not found in this world. But what Solomon picks up on, and this is what we often miss in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that there is complexity to the life we live. It's not just that Solomon is complex. Here's the weightier truth of, of the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the greatest truths we learn from the book, it's that life is complex. And Solomon picks up on that. I mean, how is it? Right, that Solomon can say in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 22 and 23, for what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is futile. And then in the very next breath, literally the next verse, he says there's nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? Right? He seems a little crazy. Like, how is it that you're going to say, like, what good is my work? What does it profit? It's nothing but sorrow and grief. And then in the very next breath, hey, but go out, eat, drink, be merry, and enjoy your work because it's good and it's from God. But the thing is, Solomon's not crazy. He just recognizes the fundamental truth that life is complex. And often, if we're honest, we act like it's more simple than that, don't we? We view life a little bit too linear. We think it's all or nothing, right? Like I'm either all the way on the mountain or I'm all the way in the valley, right? It's a good season. I'm on the mountaintop, which has to mean that everything is going great. My family's going great. My job's going great. My personal relationships are all great. Everything is smooth. Or we say, I'm in a valley. I'm in the bad season, which means everything is rough. Family is rough. My job is rough. My health is rough. My relationships are rough. But that's just not the way that life works. Each season has its ups and downs, and sometimes it changes from moment to moment and situation to situation. Sometimes one aspect of our life is great while simultaneously another aspect is horrible. And then sometimes it switches in the blink of an eye. But let's be honest, church, even our best moments are tainted with a little sorrow. And even our worst moments tend to have a silver lining. And you're not crazy for sensing that. That's just the complexity of this life that we live. Now, here's why I tell you all of this. Because I believe that way too often, we try to determine the measure of our spirituality by the degree of our sorrow. Let me say that again. We try to determine the measure of our spirituality by the degree of our sorrow. In other words, we often think we are more holy the less sad we are. 
And church, I want you to know this morning that if you look back on this past year and your immediate response is one of sorrow and sadness, that does not mean you are not growing in your faith, and it does not mean you are less than as a Christian. It doesn't even mean you're an immature Christian, because sorrow and sadness have never been the determining factors of your spiritual maturity. And I think I'm on good exegetical ground here. I've shared it with you before, but you go back to Jacob in Genesis 32 who wrestles with God and then his name is changed. The name that would ultimately define God's people in the Old Testament, Israel. And that name literally means to struggle. To struggle with God. The people of God are defined by their struggle. Or you could look at the authors of the Psalms themselves. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 42. I'm just going to, I'm going to read to you Psalm 42. I want to read it to you in its entirety. It says, for the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in so much turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I am deeply distressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. And all your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. You know, that is a psalm where the psalmists are wrestling with such a deep sorrow from a belief that God has abandoned them, that he has left them. But maybe you noticed at the beginning, here's the reason I read it. It says at the beginning that this is, for the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. It was a song that was written and sung by the sons of Korah. Here's why I point this out. These weren't amateurs in the faith, right? These were men seasoned in theology and seasoned in the worship of God. The sons of Korah were tasked with the role of leading all the worship in the tabernacle. These were mature brothers, and even for these men, You see them wrestling with sorrow and sadness that comes from the hardship of life. But I don't want you to miss this. The sorrow and the sadness that makes its way into Psalm 42 is inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. Because all scripture is breathed out by God. Which means even that deep sadness was inspired by God himself. What I'm trying to get you to see, church, is that the measure of your faith has never been determined by the degree of your sadness. And so if you are a brother or a sister who wrestles with sorrow and sadness and depression, I want you to know that your spirituality has never depended on you overcoming those things. You are not a stronger Christian because you are never sad. 
and you are not a weaker Christian because you wrestle with sorrow. If that's the case, Jesus was weak. It's all a part of the ups and downs and the complexity of this life that we live, and it should be expected. But this actually leads to the second truth that I want you to see. First, as you look back and reflect on this year, you're not crazy if it's hard to hold this balance of the highs and the lows and the goods and the bads and the ups and the downs. That's just the complexity of life. But as you look forward, I need you to remember this, that the ups and the downs are built in. That the ups and the downs are built in. Go back to our text. I I want you to pay attention to verse 4. He says in Ecclesiastes 3, 4, that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. In other words, the ups and the downs are built into life. I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon that you will not be the determining factor of how this next year plays out. Now listen, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't make resolutions. If you're one of those weird people, make your resolutions, okay? I'm not telling you you shouldn't set goals for this year. It's good for us to plan, right? We make our plans, the Lord guides our steps. I'm just simply trying to tell you that built into this complex life, built into this next year are already ups and downs that will intentionally come no matter what you do. And the reason for that is because there is a sovereign God who rules and reigns, and there is a God who is exercising his providence in your life, and you just aren't that God. Listen, the only way that Solomon can make the claims that he makes in verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 with any type of confidence That there's an occasion for everything, that there's a time for new life and death, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to, 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 to mourn, a time to laugh. The only way he can say any of this with any certainty is if there is a God who is sovereign over this world, who is orchestrating what does and does not happen. The very fact that we can count on both ups and downs is evidence that there is a God who is in control. Because in God's providence, there will be good moments this year, And we will celebrate and rejoice. And there will be hard moments. And we will mourn and we will weep. There will be tears and there will be laughter. And you and I will not be the determining factor of how this year plays out. And what we have to reckon with, right, is that God in his good providence has orchestrated our lives in such a way That there will be both ups and downs. There will be mountains and there will be valleys. And to some degree, right, we know that to be true. I don't have to convince you that there are ups and downs in life. There are ups and downs in everything. Like, let's just be honest for a moment. I came in here uh, this Sunday morning, right, excited to worship. I sang the first song with joy in my heart. Then I sang the second song with tears and sorrow and frustration. Then it came time to give our money, and I was excited to give. And then I had to greet people, and I didn't really want to talk to any of you. Then I got excited to preach, and now I've started preaching. And I'm like, man, how do I get to the end of this as quick as possible? And I bet the ending's going to come, and I'm going to be like, man, I, I really miss preaching. There are ups and downs just built into the everyday rhythm of our lives. But while that may be scary, here's the beauty of it all. None of it is meaningless. None of it is meaningless. Because for those of us who are in Christ, we know that no mountaintop nor no valley low is pointless. Because in everything, God is working 
for our good. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Here's the thing I've come to experience in my own life, and maybe you've experienced this too. Often when we try to avoid the low moments at all cost, we're actually trying to avoid the times where God does his best work. And you don't have to agree with me because I brought some witnesses. It wasn't until Joseph was sold into slavery that he came to realize that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. It wasn't until Moses stood in front of the Red Sea that he came to realize that God can make a way where there is no way. It wasn't until Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire that they realized that God was standing next to them the whole time. Peter tells us that it is through trials and grief that our faith is refined. In other words, there are seasons and there are moments when the lows are intentionally built in by God for our good. And what that also means is that every valley is not an indication of the absence of God in your life. Sometimes it's leading him right where, it's him leading you right where he wants you. As I was working on this sermon, I was talking with Aaliyah about it. She reminded me of a, a line from a song that her and I both love and one that she's been really helpful to remind me of in some of my low moments. And this is the line. It's, no, I will not stop when the way gets hard because the green only grows in the valley and that's where you are. Often our attempts to avoid the sorrow is actually an attempt to avoid God. And you see, the question that we have to answer is do we want God more than we want comfort? Because here's the last truth I have for you as you prepare to walk into whatever is in store for you in 2024. It's better with God. It's just better with God. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes begins and ends with the same declaration. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. As Solomon, throughout Ecclesiastes, he's honest about how money just can't satisfy, how pleasure can't satisfy, how work can't satisfy, how wisdom can't satisfy, how prestige and recognition can't satisfy. Often the things we're hoping for in the new year, they just won't satisfy. And he mentions all these things that we often tend to think make for the good life. And at the end, he still says, absolute futility. Everything is futile. But that declaration doesn't actually get the last word in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in the very last few verses of the book, he says this, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. Let me paraphrase Solomon for you, if you will. After examining his life, all his riches, all his wealth, all his pleasures, he says, it's just better to walk with God. It's just better to walk with God because here's the thing. This year, you will have joyful highs and you will have painful lows. But whether on the mountaintop or in the valley, it's better to be there if that's where God is. Because with him, we know that the highs and the lows that are intentionally built in have purpose. It's just better with him. You know, 
There's a beautiful picture of this back in Psalm 42, which I read to you earlier. If you remember, it begins, and he says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. Do you know why that's such a profound picture and we often miss it? Let me explain it to you. Deers can't sweat. Did you know that? That deers can't sweat. And so deers, just kind of the way that God made them, they're prey animals. So they're always heightened. They're always on alert. They're always looking over their shoulder. And sometimes they got to make a run for it. But the problem comes when they make a run for it because they don't sweat, they pant. And when they pant, they let off a scent that then allows the predator to follow it to wherever it's going. But what the deer knows is that if it can just make it to water, it can drink the water and the panting will stop. And the water in the midst of the threat, will cover it and protect it. Here's what the psalmist is saying. There are some lows in my life right now. There are some threats. People are saying to me, where is your God? My adversaries are all around me. But as the deer pants for water, if I can just get to God, he will cover me in the midst of my adversaries. Not, the psalmist does not say, not that the threats will stop. Not that the lows will go away, but that God is sufficient to protect us even when the lows are all around us. It's just better to be with God. But I'll give you one more. One of the stories of Jesus that has always resonated with me. It always just kind of speaks to my soul. It's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus knows what's coming in that moment. Like that's a low in Jesus' life. He knows the pain, he knows the sorrow and the agony, and he begins to feel it. And Matthew 26 tells us that Jesus is distressed and grieved. He even says it to Peter, James, and John when he pulls them aside. And he says, listen, I need you to pray for me because my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. So Jesus who has all power and who has all authority, begins to plead with the Father to take this cup from him. But then he says this, and I pray that this line is never lost on us. But not my will, but yours. Because in that moment, Jesus is modeling for us one of the most profound truths. That even in our deepest sorrow, it's better to be with God even with a cross in front of him, he knew it was safer to be with God. Because what Jesus knows is the truth that you and I have to remember. It's better to be with God because sorrow never has the last word. And it's better to be with God because grief doesn't have the final say. It's better to be with God because God is for us and not against us. And if you ever doubt that, we simply look to the cross and the gospel that we say we believe. Jesus stuck with God in the garden. And it led him to be arrested, to be pierced for our transgressions, 
to be whipped, to be beaten, to be a crown of thorns, to be placed on his head. They led him up that hill called Calvary. Again, they put nails in his feet and his hands. They crucified him on that tree, and he died in our place to pay the debt that you and I owe. They put him in a tomb, and he was buried on Friday. He stayed there Saturday, and he rose to new life on Sunday. And Jesus and the gospel is a declaration to us that sorrow will not have the last word, that grief will not have the last word, and that God is for us and not against us. And even in the low moments, he is working for our good and for his glory. So here's what I got for you, church. Some of you have been reflecting and you will continue to reflect on the year that has passed. You're not crazy if it doesn't make sense what you've gone through. How in one moment you're on a mountaintop and it seems like in the next breath you're in the valley. You're not crazy. You're experiencing the complexity of life. And as we move into 2024, know that there are highs and lows that are already built in by God, but none of it is meaningless. He's doing something in your life. And if that's true, then it's better to just walk with God this year than to be anywhere else. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the reminder, even in a hard book like Ecclesiastes, God, that it's just better to be with you that you have been for us, you will continue to be for us. That the low moments are not evidence that you have abandoned us. God, in the high moments don't even necessarily mean that we have your favor. That we are just living in this world that is tainted with sin, where there are mountaintops and there are valleys, but what we cling to, God, I pray what we cling to this year is that wherever we are, we can hold fast to you and you will hold fast to us. And so give us grace, Lord, to believe that no matter what comes, it's just better to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.